Keely, would you throw up that image for me? So this is in 2004. I'm the tough guy on the left in the sleeveless Calvin Klein shirt. Uh, those fancy socks and white tennis shoes. Uh, yeah, that's at the top of Mount Catherine, um, right outside Seattle, Washington. Um, so in 2004, uh, this is a group of folks from a college ministry I used to work with called Tacoma College Ministries in a, in a town called Tacoma. And um, we, uh, we were going to this college ministry conference at um, my alma mater, the University of Washington, bow down. Um, and we'll lose on Friday, but you can watch. Um, Anyway, we were at this conference. House students were actually there. This was the first time, or the first time I ever really noticed students from Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, was actually this year. It was during this very conference. This was a break in the conference, and we went for a hike. And at the bottom of the of, the, of Mount Catherine, uh, my boss—I don't know if he's in the picture. I think he took the picture. Um, who, who is one of my best friends today? My boss asked everybody at the bottom of the mountain to to grab a rock, and we're going to carry it up Mount Catherine. And so I, I mean, if it's not obvious, I went and found the biggest rock I could find. Um, and this sucker was huge. I have a picture of it somewhere. I couldn't find that one. I wanted to show you that one because it looks really dramatic. Um, but it was probably about this big. Uh, and most of the trip, I actually had to carry it on my shoulders because it was about two and a half hour hike to the top of this thing. Um, and, uh, and so I'm carrying this rock up the, up the side of Mount Catherine. Um, and... Uh, <sighs> And when we get to the top, I don't know what we're going to do. Joe didn't tell us, um, but we get to the top of the mountain, and, and we're standing on this sort of precipice, and I even see one of those, is there like a name for like those little altars that are built with rocks all over like rivers and stuff? Is there a name for that? What, what is it? Karn? That's what it's called? Oh, okay. Go ahead. Whatever. A Karn or just, look, that's Karn. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. A Karn? Okay, great. Whatever. We'll call it that. So there's... Carnes, I don't know, on top of this mountain. Um, you're helpful. I'm just not. Sorry, that's on me. Uh, and so I'm like, oh, cool, we're going to build this thing. My rock's going to be like the foundation of the, of the carn. And um, anyway, and Joe, Joe sort of calls us to the edge of this cliff, and he goes, and now what I want you to do is throw the rock off the side of the cliff. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, I went and found the like the biggest rock I can possibly carry, and I carried it two and a half hours up the side of this mountain, and now I'm just going to throw it off to the bottom again. Like, what's the point in that? And I'm quite sure that there was like a spiritual message to the whole thing. I, I have no idea what it was, because the entire reason that I carried this rock up the side of this thing was to try to get this guy that I looked up to to be really impressed with me. You know, like I'm going to carry, maybe there's a girl there. I don't really know. It doesn't matter because I'm married to Anna now. She's great. Um, but but I, I was carrying this big rock up hoping somehow that somebody would be like, man, that's really cool. But I ended up looking like an idiot because I'm carrying this gigantic rock for two and a half hours up the side of this mountain. And it's way worse than looking like an idiot because it didn't even look like an idiot to anybody else. Nobody cared. I just look like an idiot to me. Like, I threw the big rock up the side of the cliff. They all threw their pebbles off the side of the cliff, and we moved on. Nobody said, wow, that was a really big rock. Like, nothing. It got, I got absolutely nothing, and we just moved on. And it's super lame. That's, like, such a lame thing. Like, I look back, and I'm like, I, was, I wouldn't have used these words for it, but if I can look back now as a 20, I guess I was 23 in that picture. If I can look back at my 23-year-old self, I think what I wanted was to be known and loved and I was trying to do that by carrying a big rock. Like, that's really stupid. Can, can you level with that for just a minute? Like, if somebody's sitting there going, I want, how do I uh, sort of draw close to somebody I really respect? How do I uh, develop some kind of intimacy, maybe with a girl that I'm interested in? Oh, I know, carry a really big rock. Uh, like, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, it's so dumb. And I wish that were the only thing like that that I'd ever done in my life. 
But it turns out that I do that with a lot of things, with what I wear, with how I talk, social media, with my posture, with how I do my job, with how I do the dishes. And I know I'm not alone <laughs> uh, tonight, and I know this because of the way Jesus talks about this in the Scriptures um, and, and countless conversations with people, and the times that I do notice people are carrying uh, something like the equivalent of a really big rock for no reason, that tonight is for every one of us who tries to earn love in really dumb ways. Let's pray. Father, um, send your Spirit to help us out tonight. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in Luke 15, uh, Jesus tells this story about a man with, with two sons. And we just read the story. Uh, many of you might know it. It's arguably the most famous of all Jesus' parables. It is um, even more, uh, less arguable that it's the most loved of his parables. It's incisive, exposing, and it tells not just of one prodigal son, but of two and a prodigal father to match. So prodigal is a word um, which means extravagant, or actually, did we put a, did I give you, there we go. This is what prodigal means. I'm going to use the word a few times. I want you to know it, and I'm going to use all these words, and they all sort of are dancing with each other a little bit. It means wasteful, extravagant, or reckless. One son was wasting his inheritance in a foreign land. One was wasting it right near the father, and the father spends everything recklessly on his two sons. So prodigal, all three of them. This whole, this whole uh, parable is about the, the prodigalness of the kingdom of God. The younger son in the story went to his father and asked for his share of the inheritance. And in that culture, um, if a family had two sons, when the father died, the land and the possessions would have been divided amongst those two sons unequally, but they would have been divided. Um, uh, And the younger son is asking for his share while the father is alive, which which, which means what? Yeah, I wish you were dead. You might as well be dead to me. And the father does something really extravagant, I think prodigal even. He divides everything, and he gives his younger son the inheritance, which is absolutely crazy. And as if to emphasize the real drama that's going on, the text actually says, so the, the son said, I, I, want, um, I want you to divide up the, the possessions, the wealth, the inheritance that's mine. But the, the Greek, as it moves forward in the language, says that the father divided his life. The Greek word's bios, which means life. He divided his life, and he gives the younger son a portion of his very life. The father in this story gives his younger son exactly what he asks for. We spin our wheels sometimes wondering why the Father won't give us what we ask for, friends. But how much more harrowing is it to know that sometimes the Father gives us precisely what we ask for, like the Father does in this parable. And so the younger son, wanting to be free to live life on his own terms, some of you in this room I know totally relates to this kind of uh, way of interacting with the Father, Uh, and I hope tonight is really good for you too. I'm talking to a slightly different crowd, but... um, but we're actually going to talk about you for a while to talk about everybody else. Uh, uh, this son, wanting to be free to live life on his own terms, takes his inheritance. He converts it all into cash, like literally like liquidates everything, as if to leave no root or connection behind. And he tears off to the other side of the world, to the far country. And he does there in that far country what anyone with that kind of blood money would do. He spends it all. On, on uh, mostly prostitutes is what the text says, but other things surely too. Um, and just as his money runs out, a famine breaks out and tough luck starts to look like karma. 
It's the Far East, remember? Uh, and he's in need, but then so is everyone during a famine. And so the only job he can find is to work on a pig farm, which no upstanding Hebrew person would ever do, but he's not upstanding, and he's left his old life. So there he was in his new life, knee-deep in the mud, feeding pigs. And one day he pauses. The text says he, he comes to his senses. He's hungry and alone, and he looks at the food that the pigs are eating, and he realizes that they are being cared for better than he is. And he thinks to himself, how many of my father's servants have more than enough food to eat, and here I am starving. He's come to the bottom, friends, the absolute bottom. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll I'll go to my father. I will confess what I've done. I will make my case. I'll, I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. If I could just be a servant in the house of my father, it would be better than my freedom somewhere else, he comes to realize. And so the younger son sets off for home. And it is no massive moral victory, which is so helpful for me because I think sometimes we try to demand those kinds of things. He's just desperate and hungry. And that desperation carves out a kind of clarity in his mind He has no claim on the Father anymore. He just has a plea, only a request, and he's at the mercy of the Father. And I wonder, as that son gets closer and closer to home, what his posture looks like, you know, what he's rehearsing in his mind, knowing that he has already played all his cards. And he's totally at the mercy of his Father, who he has already said is dead to him. He doesn't have this excuse like, like, you don't understand, Dad. If only you could have, like, everything about his story has said he's, he's done. We are dead to each other. And, he, and one of the greatest lines in all of the stories in all of the world comes next. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Everything about this is reckless, which is just another word for prodigal. And so the prodigal son is embraced by a prodigal father, a father who tears off across the horizon with prodigal intentions. (laughs) Running so fast, he hikes up his robe and sprinting to his son, the text says he falls upon his neck. That's what it actually says. We translate it in English as he kisses him. But let your imagination rise to the image of a father's face buried in his son's neck as they embrace, each dead to each other just moments before. I know a little of this image because when I haven't seen my kids for a few days, we, we both get so excited, or, or, or me and whichever one of my kids gets so excited that I pick them up and I squeeze them and, and I kiss their necks and their cheeks and their heads and their hair, and we just bury our, our faces into each other's necks. That's what the Greek means. Like, that this is, that's the kind of embrace that the father and this prodigal son were having. There's no propriety in this. It's just reckless affection for a lost son who's come home. And at one moment, the son pulls back and tries to tell his father what he'd been rehearsing for days, his reason for for coming back after squandering the inheritance and saying, you're dead to me, dad. And the father cuts him off and yells to the servants, quickly bring the best robe and the ring and shoes. The robe would have been his, of course, the father's, and the ring probably would have had a family seal, which is a sign of membership into the family. 
Oh, and bring the good cow and prepare it for dinner and let's have a huge party and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. And this father who had already given his prodigal son a portion of his life is now giving him everything else. All of it for the son who squandered everything that he's already been given. The son who for all intents and purposes said, I wish you were dead. And the father who had already given him a portion of his life tears off across the horizon to give his prodigal son the rest of his life. And if we can identify with the younger brother in this story, I hope our hearts will be melted along with his. To believe that we can be received again. When Jesus tells parables, you see, he's talking always in his parables about what the kingdom of God is like. What all of life is like under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of thing you would expect from fathers in the kingdom of God. To believe that we can have a seat of honor at the table even after we've squandered it. To know that nothing, truly nothing can separate us from the love of the Father that's in Christ Jesus. To believe that we can be welcomed home. That's good news. That's the, the gospel. That the sick can be made well, that the sinner can be forgiven, that the lost can be found, that the dead can be made alive. That's, that's good news, right? Maybe you don't believe it, friends. If the dead can be brought to life, is that good news? Do you have to think about this? Would it be really good news if sick, the sick could be made well and the dead could be brought to life? If y'all really don't know the answer, I can change the sermon right now. We can talk about that. Somebody answer me, please. Would it be good news if the dead could be brought to life? Yes. But not all of us actually receive this as good news. There's another brother in this story. Remember, this man had two sons, right? The older brother, meanwhile, while all this was going on, was in the field. You know, all the emoting and restoration was going on. He was in the field working. And when he draws near to the house and he smells the feast and he sees the orange glow of the fire through the window and he begins to hear the sounds of merrymaking on the wind, he calls to one of the servants to ask what's going on. And the servant tells him the good news. That this, his brother, has come home. And his father's thrown this huge party to celebrate. And how does the older brother respond to the good news? He's angry. He's angry that his lost brother was found and is being celebrated. And he refuses to go in. And in a strange twist, the younger, reckless, prodigal son was in the home celebrating with the father, while the older, dutiful, seemingly responsible one was outside in the cold. And if our hearts melt at the father who would tear off on the horizon to embrace one son, then they should melt too at the father who would leave the party to plead with the other. The text implies that the father entreats the son, pleads with the son over and over and over again, come in, come in, come in. And the older son's not having it. Look, that's how, that's how the son talks to the dad. Look, seething in anger. He doesn't even address his dad as father. Look, I've been serving you, servant. I've been serving you all these years. I've never disobeyed you. 
You've never even thrown me a small party. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured his life and squandered all that you gave him, you throw him a huge party. Notice, not only does he refuse to address his father as father, he calls his brother this son of yours. The younger brother disowned his family, right? Y'all are dead to me. Give me my stuff, I'm gone. But so too does the older. He's just playing the long game. And the father says, son, and don't miss the grace in that word. For in a single word, the father welcomes him back. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, this your brother. Again, grace. This your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And look at how the story ends. The younger brother is inside and the older brother is out. The younger brother is overcome with gratitude. The older is overwhelmed with anger. Friends, which brother is better off? I'll wait again. Which brother? Yes. The younger brother said, I wish you were dead to me and squandered everything on prostitutes. The end of this story, the younger one is better off. (laughs) The older brother isn't better or even good. This isn't a story where the father points to the older brother and puts his arm around the younger brother and says, why can't you just be like him? This isn't that story. The older brother in the end wasn't being responsible or dutiful or faithful or working hard because of his love for the father. He didn't stay home to enjoy his inheritance. If you listen to his words, it seemed like he never enjoyed any of it. I've been serving you all these years. You never even threw me a party. It's as if he'd been working hard for all these years to be invited home when he could have just gone home from the start. If I'm good enough, then maybe my dad will celebrate me. If I try harder than everyone else and don't screw up, then maybe I'll be welcomed in. If I just keep it together, maybe I can prove that I'm worth it and that they didn't make a mistake. And the younger brother shows up after squandering what the older brother has worked so freaking hard to protect. And the younger brother is welcomed in with like pomp and generosity. And the older brother's pissed. Because the younger brother was reckless with his portion of the inheritance. And the older brother was wasteful with his too because it didn't earn him what he thought it would earn him. So it was a waste. He's angry because he didn't think it's fair. Why put in all this work if it doesn't secure my place at the table? Why put in all this effort if you can apparently squander it and then just be welcomed home? That doesn't seem fair. Do you know what it's like to work really hard at something and then someone else who didn't work as hard as you gets what you want? To study for days and get a C when your friend barely cracks a book and gets an A? To sort of muscle through adolescence, maybe it wasn't hard, I don't know, but to muscle through adolescence with chastity, (laughs) you know, only to see somebody who's really promiscuous get like, you know, get engaged to get married. To go the extra mile behind the scenes only to see someone else get recognized and celebrated. 
Do you know what that's like? The older brother is experiencing this, and it doesn't seem fair to him. And friends, it's not. It's not fair. The way of Jesus Christ is not fair. And Jesus is quite emphatic on this at many different points in His public ministry. Though He is just, He is not interested in fairness. He is very interested in extravagant love. So much so that He often seems really reckless or wasteful or prodigal Himself. I will say it again, He is interested in love, not fairness. And the older brother is angry, and he has no joy, and he's despairing because he's been living in a world built on merit. Do you know what merit means? Everybody know what merit means? Somebody want to try to define it? What does merit mean? Yeah, trying to earn something. Everything is earned in the older brother's eyes, and so he's angry and joyless, and he's in despair. He's angry. His self-righteousness hasn't actually set him apart in the eyes of the Father. The fact that I didn't squander my inheritance like that brother, I'm still working at home. I'm not sleeping with prostitutes. And his self-righteousness did not earn him a, more, a higher place in the Father's heart and the Father's eyes than the younger brother who squandered his inheritance. He's angry that he wasn't set apart like that. He's angry at the Father when he doesn't get what he thinks he deserves, and he's angry at himself when he screws up because of what he thinks it will cost him. He's angry. And he has no joy because his work was a burden, not a gift. He had been a son but felt like a servant. He resented what his younger brother would have been grateful for. Remember the younger brother said, I would rather be a servant in the house of my father. And the older brother says, I have been a servant for years. I see this sometimes when people volunteer here to work and then act like slaves, robbed of joy because they did it to earn something. And so showing up early and moving that table and giving a little extra all becomes forms of trying to earn favor. And it robs all the work of joy. The older brother's joyless, and he despairs because he doubts the father's love for him. How come you never did this for me? He doubts this not because of the father, but because he's been trying to earn what was already offered to him freely. He has stayed outside when he was welcomed home the entire time. I can think, friends, of so many times that I have been meeting with like a mentor of mine, and I've wanted intimacy. I've wanted to be known and loved by these older men. I wanted them to like me, right? But I've kept them from that. I've held them at arm's length trying to prove myself to them. And so they might say, how are you doing? And I say, well, thank you. Do you need help with anything? Nope, got it, thank you. And they look for any way in, but I am too busy working trying to prove something to them and to actually just come home. On the flip side, I meet a lot of young men who want to be known and loved by me, by other older people that I know. And they go about this by trying to prove to me that they're smart 
or that they have their lives together, they have it all figured out. And I sometimes see those guys get super jealous of the intimacy I have with other men whose lives are a total train wreck. Do you know who I, who I really know and love in life? Who I develop the most intimacy with? Amongst my friends, amongst workers, among my family members? It's the people who are vulnerable. And the people who seem to know that this whole intimacy thing only really works as a gift. If you're constantly trying to prove it, you're not only not going to get what you want the most, you're going to keep it at arm's length. Love, intimacy cannot be earned, friends. It's, It's a gift. It's just a gift. And the older brother forgets this. And so he despairs because the father has never thrown him a party, but he's never even asked for one. (laughs) He's never expressed a desire for one. He's been slaving away in the fields, hoping that his father would know that apparently that what he wanted was a party, but he's probably even been trying to prove that he's a son who doesn't need a party. That's what older brothers and sisters like to do. That's as dumb as carrying a rock up a mountain, hoping people would want to know and love you because of that. That's why he despairs. His very work has kept him from what he wants most. And so he's angry, and he's joyless, and he's despairing because all his work hasn't given him what he wants the most. The Scriptures tell us that all are lost and have gone astray. But the older brothers and sisters don't know it. And so this parable is a story for older brothers and sisters because Jesus wants them to come home. He wants them to see how generous the father is to the younger brother and realize that the father is that generous with them too. But there is this internal resistance in older brothers and sisters where we wonder if we even need it. The kingdom of God is built on love and grace, not on fairness and merit. Younger brothers and sisters have their problems. (laughs) No one denies it. No one hears the story of a younger brother who says, I wish you were dead, dad, takes half the money and runs and squanders it on prostitutes in a four land until he's broke and thinks that might be an interesting way to a flourishing, abundant life. No one's ever interpreted it that way, which is precisely why the younger brother's story isn't actually that dangerous or not as dangerous. Does anyone here actually want to train wreck their life with chemical addiction and sex? Does anyone want to be broke, homeless, and jealous of what animals eat? Great. I think we're fine. That's why Jesus doesn't address that here. The younger brother never thinks that he's okay until he's home. But that's not true of the older brother, and that's specifically why Jesus focuses here on the older brother, because older brothers and sisters might not know that they too are lost. You might remember that the story begins, I didn't tell this part, but it was read earlier, This is Luke chapter 15. I'm going to talk about verses 1 and 2 right now. The story begins um, with with these older brother types, these Pharisees and these scribes, sitting at a table with Jesus. And they grumble because Jesus also has invited younger brother types. And so he's sitting with this very mixed crowd, and some of us have a real tendency to think that Jesus is only interested in one or the other. And friends, he's interested in all. (laughs) He's interested in all. He is, this is the guy who is super radical and wears tassels. 
He, he's the guy that like, like is, is, is hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners but doesn't sin. He like frustrates all of our categories. And here he is at a dinner party with Pharisees and scribes and tax collectors and sinners. The overwhelming majority of these people would never be in the same room with other people in this room. And I'm quite sure I know how the tax collectors and sinners feel. They feel like this is really rad and they're going to take advantage of the free drinks at this party. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, the text says. And they're saying, this man, Jesus, this man receives and he eats with sinners. And so Jesus begins to address them with a story of an older brother who in anger grumbles about a father receiving and eating with a sinner. What good news for the sinner! But it didn't seem like very good news to the older brother, who, like the Pharisees, had been working so freaking hard to be special. Now realizing that their specialness had nothing to do with their worth. What a waste. What a waste to spend all that time. If you know anything about the Pharisees, they, they were known to spend so much time in spiritual disciplines. Fast at least twice a week. Tithe all the time loudly. Pray all the time. They were even known to get on their knees in their garden and pull one of every ten leaves off their herbs and bring that to the, temp, to the, tab, to the temple. That's how disciplined they were, and they're looking at this table and going, if the tax collectors and the sinners get to sit right next to Jesus, like us, then what's the point of all of that work? They, too, are prodigal. They just don't know it. They, too, are lost, and they just don't know it. And so they carry unnecessary burdens around, hoping to earn a thing which can never be earned. Jesus talks about even some of the stuff they carry in that way like a burden. He says they place burdens on people that are too heavy for them to carry. It's wasted work, friends. They are, they are actually squandering their inheritance in the long game. Not on prostitutes, but they're squandering it on their own self-righteousness. The younger son couldn't earn his place by leaving, and the older son doesn't earn his place by staying. In the story, the older brother not only feels left out at the end, he's actually standing outside in the cold because he'd been spending all of his time carrying the wasted and unnecessary burden of trying to earn the favor of his father. And I wonder how many of us in this room are carrying unnecessary burdens, self-imposed ones, trying to earn the favor of our father. You, for example, remaining a virgin until you get married do you know that doesn't make God love you more? Do you know that it does not guarantee that you'll have a good marriage? God wants you to be chaste because it's good for you and because He loves you. That's why. But it will not make Him love you more. Somebody who's sleeping around may have a better marriage than you. And God loves them just as much. And you being a virgin will not guarantee your entrance into God's kingdom. So too with reading your Bible, it will not make God love you more. So too with not cussing, with going to church, with going on mission trips, with not getting hammered on spring break. 
Just like nothing will separate you from the love of God in Jesus, nothing can earn it either. I can hear a pin drop in this room. I know I'm not telling tons of jokes tonight, but I, I, I believe that a lot of folks who are showing up to worship services on a college campus after spring break are probably older brothers and sisters. And when we start hearing that we cannot earn the favor of God, then there is a sense which may be like the older brother in this story, we begin to get a little angry because it doesn't seem fair. And maybe some of the work and the, the ways in which we have been working so dang hard have have not been filled with joy. One of my friends says one of the key markers of older brothers and sisters is that they feel insecure. He said younger brothers and sisters just know. They just know that they're not worth it. (laughs) Like, and they are. We have to talk about that, okay? He's like, we just know. Like, we've been like, well, we can't do anything to earn it, so we might as well just take the money and run, you know? Um, But older brothers and sisters are like dancing in this insecure place, wondering if maybe they just did a little bit more or they didn't mess up just quite so much, then maybe they could, but it never feels secure enough. Just like nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing can earn it either. And if that's your motive, if one of the reasons why you are, if the major reason why you are um, going about life the way that you're going about it is to try to prove a thing, to earn a thing, especially as it deals with some intimacy or favor with God. You'll miss the very thing you long for most because His kingdom is not built on your merit. It's built on the radical, extravagant, reckless, prodigal love of Jesus Christ. When I was carrying that gigantic rock up the side of Mount Catherine trying to get Joe to love me, (laughs) I just had to write that sentence so I saw it in the face. Um, Joe doesn't know this either. I should probably tell him. Uh, You know what I could have done instead? Like, if I really wanted Joe to know me and love me, what could I have done instead? Yeah. I, yeah, I could have, like, taken the risk and trusted that he did actually like me. Like, the guy hired me. He actually told me that he loved me. Um, uh, you know, I could have actually just grabbed a small pebble, put it in my pocket, and then, like, walked alongside Joe. <laughs> That's what I could have done the entire time. Instead, I hung in the back like a martyr, carrying this unnecessary burden on my shoulders, trying to earn what was mine already. And when I got to the top, just like the older brother, I felt outside, and I think I was more outside. My friend Chris, who is a classic prodigal son, uh, oh my gosh, he's a prodigal son. We've been texting all day about this sermon. He told me that the danger, the danger for prodigal sons, because prodigal, the prodigal sons are so interesting, and I, I go slightly off my notes, I'm sorry, but this is um, maybe really helpful for some of you. Uh, I, am, I am classically an older brother character. I mean, look, y'all, I'm a freaking preacher, okay? Um, it's, it, there's, there are some younger brother preachers, but um, that's a pretty classic story for me. And for, for many of the folks that are older brothers and sisters, they're actually really jealous of younger brothers and sisters. They're jealous of the freedom that they see. They're, I know I am. I get jealous of, of seeing the younger brother embraced by the father in a way I've never experienced, not because the father doesn't offer that to me, but because I've never made myself open to it before. Do you see that? And so I've been talking all day. Jesus says later, or another part of of his ministry work in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says that the tax collectors and the sinners actually go first into the kingdom of God. And just like in this story, the prodigal son goes home first. This reminds me of so much of what, what Paul says about the Gentiles and the Jews in the New Testament as well. There's something 
about the younger brother realizing more quickly often the stuff, and I've been thinking about this all day, and Chris is like, careful, man, careful, because there's a danger with the younger brothers, with the prodigals. He said, many prodigals leave for foreign lands, and they never come home. They just live and die there, so don't celebrate the younger brother story. And I said, brother, that's so good, and I need to hear that. I don't want to be the younger brother anyway. I don't want to squander my inheritance in that way for sure. But when Chris told me, younger brothers many times go off to faraway lands and never come home, I said, right, but for older brothers and sisters, there will come a day where many of them will say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name, and he will say, get away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. Matthew chapter 7. If you are an older brother and sister, the danger is that you might not know that you're outside. And your work does not get you in. Your righteousness does not get you in. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the only door in is Jesus. And that cannot, he cannot be earned. He will not be earned. He will only be received. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Some of us just don't know that we're lost. And whether you are a younger or older brother or friend, whatever you're doing, stop and come home. Let's pray. Father, for as many people as there are in this room, there are that many stories of younger and older brothers and sisters. And Father, sin, you know, has this way uh, inside and outside of us of weaving this spell cu coupled with our rebellion against you. These things work together and, and, it, and it, um, it, it sort of sells us on this idea that we're too far gone or we've somehow got to prove that you don't make a mistake loving us or something. And, um, Father, I pray that you unweave that nasty spell. That we drop our heavy loads. That we stop working in the field when we want to party. That we come back from foreign lands. Lord, it's a dangerous request because it seems like you, you actually answer our requests sometimes. But expose our motives, please. So that we're not left out in the cold ignorance, expose our motives, help us to know what's going on. And if what we want is, is, is for you to embrace us, then, then, uh, then stir up in us a hunger for that that is so great that we must cry out in prayer saying, God, I want to, to know that you love me. I want to, to be embraced by you. Please help us to come home and to know that that. Nothing we can do can separate us from your love, and nothing we can do can earn it. Lord, it seems utterly ridiculous that you would love us. That's because we don't believe, um, we don't think as highly about uh, humanity as you do. <laughs> um, it just seems like you're so wasteful. We even, we even stretch, God, to, uh, and I, I know I have friends in this room that will get nervous as I pray on their behalf this way, but um, 
it's, it's, it's unfathomable for us to believe that there aren't, uh, sort of, there is an intelligent life somewhere in the universe, not, not because of mathematics, but because we just don't think we're that great. It just seems crazy. And it seems so prodigal of you to make an entire cosmos just to be with us. I don't know what you're doing, God, in the universe. You do whatever you want, but, but, but help us to know how much we mean to you. And I pray that softens our hearts, that gives us hope and, and that we have uh, the, the courage uh, and sort of with fear and trembling, we decide to come home.